Coming up on this week's show, Tally Spencer is here as part of the GRL blog tour. Joyfully Jay tells us what's on her reading list right now. And Joe Okonkwo talks about his debut novel, Jazz Moon. Welcome to the Big Gay Fiction Podcast, the show for readers and writers of gay romance fiction. If you can read it, write it, watch it, or listen to it, these two guys are going to talk about it. Now, here are your hosts, Jeff Adams and Will Knaus. Welcome to episode 38 of Jeff and Will's Big Gay Fiction Podcast. I'm Jeff from jeffadamswrites.com. And as always, I'm Will from willknaus.com. Hey, how's it going? It's going very, very well. Well, good. How are you? <laughs> I'm good. How are you, birthday boy? Yeah. It's my birthday week. Actually, over the weekend was my birthday. And uh, we actually have no updates this week because we're recording early because we're on a road trip. Road trip! We're headed up to Ashland, Oregon to go to see The Wiz at the Oregon Shakespeare Festival in their outdoor theater. We are off to see The Wiz and uh, it's going to be amazing. Yeah, it's going to be awesome. I can't wait. We will tell you about that uh, next week. Yeah. Yeah. When we get back. So, speaking of theater, we have a theater note to give everybody. Uh, some Broadway history is going to get made on June 30th. Uh, the cast of She Loves Me is going to become the first show to live stream while the show's actually still running on Broadway. So, for the low price of $9.99, which is a fraction of the ticket price, yes. you will get to see the Tony-nominated company, which includes Jane Krakowski, Laura Benanti, Zachary Levi, Gavin Creel, and some other nifty folks. You'll see the exact show we saw on Broadway back in the spring. Actually, we'll see Laura Benanti for the first time because she was out set. Yay! Um, so yeah, go to broadwayhd.com if you're interested in all the streaming choices. Uh, so far they say it's going to be a one-time only stream June 30th at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. So check that out. Yeah, we'll definitely be tuning in. So you've read something called Cinerama. Yes, I have. Um... Uh, I just finished reading this book called Cinerama. This is the uh, recently, um, I think it came out at the end of 2015. This is the uh, paperback uh, expanded edition. I was trying to come up with a concise description of it. Uh, this is the paperback expanded edition version of a book that came out a decade ago in hardback. Uh, now, Cinerama is... Uh, sort of a brief history of 60s sleaze paperbacks and their important, uh, their the place they have in literary history and why, frankly, why they're so important. Um, there's a lot of great uh, short essays from several authors who were writing those paperbacks during that era. There are also several um, short historical essays about the different authors, the different publishers, um, and all of this information has been generally very hard to come by simply because of the nature of the material that they were printing. Um, the reason the sleaze paperbacks, the, the sexy stories uh, from the 60s are so important is because they challenged um, uh, the uh, obscenity, uh, they went, a lot of the publishers went to court and eventually went to jail fighting obscenity charges for sending these books through the mail. Uh, we get to read the kind of books we read today because these guys, uh, featured in this book, uh, they fought the good fight. Uh, so I think it's a, it's a really terrific book from a historical standpoint. It's also jam-packed with tons of colorful, lurid covers, which I love to pieces. Um, it also touches on the important... Uh, the importance the sleaze paperbacks of the 60s had to uh, LGBT literature. Because... Um, not only were there, you know, stories about sexy swingers and wife swapping and, you know, suburban scandal, uh, the uh, lesbian and gay paperbacks of the 1960s were a really huge step forward uh, in the uh, LGBT movement. So uh, I highly recommend this book. I thought it was fascinating and wonderful. Uh, if you're interested in the history of paperbacks, uh, 
or sexy paperbacks in general, <laughs> give uh, Cinerama a peek. It's good stuff. Cool. We'll link up to that in yeah. our show notes for this week. Time now for the GRL Guest Author Spotlight. We're happy to welcome Tally Spencer to the podcast as part of the official 2016 GRL blog tour. Tally delights in erotic fantasy and adventure, creating worlds where she can explore the heights and shadows of sexual passion. A hopeful romantic and lover of all things exotic, she also writes high fantasy and science fiction. Thanks to a restless father, she grew up as a bit of a nomad and still loves to travel whenever she can. Her longest stint in one place was Milwaukee, where she went to college, enjoyed a series of interesting careers, and raised three surprisingly well-adjusted sons. She later married her true love and put down roots in Philadelphia. And when not writing, Tally reads everything from sweet, goofy romances to medical research, manages her fantasy football team, and takes long walks with her loving, if slightly neurotic, poodle. Thanks for being with us, Tally. Nice to be here, Jeff. So let's talk about your latest book, Victory Portrait, uh, which is part of the Pride of Utor series. Tell us about the series and this new book. The Pride of Utor series is one I wrote um, that has both male-female and male-male pairings. Uh, It follows a family, so I'm following these different brothers and sisters as they find love and also cope with the fact that they're captives of the Utor Empire and the Emperor. So... Uh, It's a really interesting series to me. I like exploring all of the dynamics that go with having these different types of pairings. And uh, I really find it fascinating to delve into the the politics of it all and also the the sexuality of it all because we have one brother who's discovering that he's gay. He he wasn't really sure, but he does discover this. And he he has a real hard time coping with it because his father is very homophobic and and a very controlling, abusive man. I also have a sister who had to escape from out, out from under that father, and she has a male-female male, male, a, a male female relationship. And then we have the brother who always knew he was gay, but he has a hero worship for one of his captors, uh, the Utoran general, and that's the Book of Victory portrait, this youngest gay son who suffered a lot of abuse from the father, and, and that's one reason why he's not so much of a captive as the others is uh, he got taken, basically adopted by the emperor. But he has this hero worship for this great general who conquered their country. And I I really enjoyed going into that one because hero worship is such a cool thing to deal with. How did you come up with your idea for Victory Portrait? I was, well, it was actually the very first book in the Utor series. This is weird. I mean, it's the fourth book published, but it was the first story in the series, and the rest of the series all grew out of it. I was thinking about uh, an artist. I thought that would be cool because they have models who are naked. And then I thought, well, what if the artist used semen to paint with? Because that would be really interesting. And that would also provide an, a, a way to be very erotic. It was written as an erotic short story. And, you know, the general is posing for the portrait, and he's watching the artist stimulate the young man. And I thought that would be really cool to write about, so I did. And then as I, I had to do research to make sure that you could even use semen in painting, and it turns out, yes, that's a thing. Um, some very famous artists have done it, Marcel Duchamp. Um, has a picture that's basically a jizz splotch. <laughs> they don't, he painted it back in like 1930 or 40, and they only discovered in the 1980s when they did some tests that, yep, there's some semen in there. And um, Mario Castillo, the Mexican artist, also does this, and he's written extensively about why. It's like infusing the essence of life into his art. So I thought, okay, I've got something here I can run with. <laughs> I can run with this artist and and the victory portrait thing. So I expanded the short story years later into the full novel. And I guess that proves, you know, truth is stranger than fiction sometimes because you actually had to go research, (laughs) could this work? And then you find out that, in fact, it it has worked for years, decades. People have done it. They don't have much historic proof because nobody knows exactly what Michelangelo was doing back then. But, uh, yeah, they've done it. Uh, You're right. Life is stranger than fiction. You can't make some of this stuff up because it's already been done. For books that sound as complicated as these, are you more of a plotter or a pantser to do this writing? 
I'm totally a pantser, which wow. sometimes works to my disadvantage, I know. But if I get an idea, I run with that thing. And uh, I really like to follow the characters. They create the conflict. They create the tension. They create the romance. And I like to follow them as they go through it. That's not to say I don't have an outline sometimes of where it's going to eventually go. But I often end up following like, oh, that's, this works better. I'm going to go with this thing. And that happens all the time in my books. I just like to tell stories. And sometimes as the story unfolds, it tells itself. Mm-hmm. Now you mentioned that there's, there's male-male and male-female pairings in the books. Are they separated like you tell one person's story in one book? Or do the pairings flow throughout the, the, each of the books themselves? Each pairing has its own book. I... I'm cognizant of the of the reader. Not every reader is going to want to read both pairings. There are many who do, but many just want to read male male, or they just want to meet, read male female. And they don't want the other ones interfering. So I I did separate them out by books. There is an overarching story that I believe if a reader reads all of them, they get a more complete version of the story. But just reading any one of the books, is it's supposed to be standalone. Mm-hmm. I, I wrote it that way. There's a complete uh, you know, background. But you will meet the other characters in each of the other books. Sure. They, they, they still continue to exist in that universe. Yeah, this seems to be, from what I've seen, a growing trend where series will have the, the mixture of pairings and everybody kind of gets their own book along the way. I learned that from from writing male-male romance because I originally started writing as a science fiction and fantasy writer. I still do. And in in, in that venue, you just wrote all of them. If a person was gay and they fell in love with a guy, you just wrote that into the book. If they were heterosexual and they fell in love with their opposite, they wrote that into the book. And you didn't separate out stories. Uh, Think in terms of Game of Thrones. You just wrote the whole thing. And then when I came to write in Male Male Romance, uh, there was a, I saw that readers were demanding that characters get their own books. This is a very popular thing. And I'm like, oh, well, maybe I should do that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I did. How did you get your start in writing? Well, I originally started telling stories to my sister. We had to share, I mean, we had a very small house <laughs> with a large family. So we shared a bedroom and, and a double bed, and I'd just tell her stories. And I'd continue telling her stories uh, as we walked to school during the day. And, and it got to the point when I was about 13 where I started writing these things down. And I had a teacher in El Paso where I lived at the time who said, oh, you should become a writer. And I'm like, maybe I should, because before that I wanted to be a brain surgeon. So I thought, well, let's see what happens. And as I started writing stories down, I started really just enjoying the creation of stories on the page. And I, so I started writing very young. Uh, I was first published when I was in my uh, mid-20s, which was a long time ago, <laughs> sad to say. But uh, I, I just have loved writing ever since I was young. And I started out. And then my sister dared me to send one of my stories in when I was about 25 or 6. And I sent it in, and lo and behold, they published it. So, and how did you find your way to gay romance? Oh, well, see, my first books were mass market, um, were mass market paperbacks. But then I took a break because it's hard to support yourself as a writer. Uh, It's hard to pay the mortgage and the insurance and the bills. So when I got a divorce and I, (laughs) I needed to support myself and my kids, I couldn't do it with my writing. So I stopped publishing for a while. I never stopped writing, but I definitely stopped publishing. I was even ordered by the judge in the divorce to stop publishing because like I needed a real job. So then I started doing my real jobs. And when I started wanting to publish again, I'd always liked the gay stories that I'd written, but I thought, well, is there any way, I mean, can I write it? I'm not gay. Can I write it in a way that people will want to read? So I did put some stories up on a free site just to test this out. And it turns out they did want to read them. Victory Portrait was one of those stories. And so when I found out they did want to read them, I thought, well, let's see if I can publish anything in this genre. I really like writing it. Let's see if if there's interest and if people will publish it. So I submitted a story to Dream Spinner, and they did take it. And I've been doing 
gay romance ever since. That's awesome. So what's coming up next for you? I have a, a story I'm writing, a novella, for Dream Spinner's States of Love anthology. And this is where each story will focus on a state. And I, I spend a lot of time in Wisconsin. I love Wisconsin to death, even though I no longer live there. So I adopted Wisconsin and said, I'll write a story. So it's an ice fishing story, hot love and an ice shanty. It's going to be fun. Trust me. I do write fun stuff sometimes. Thick as Thieves is, is a great book and it's very fun. This will be fun, kind of like that, because you can just imagine some of the fun you can have in an ice shanty. Or if you can't, you can read the book. <laughs> it seems very cold. <laughs> They're not as cold as you think. They, they have heaters in there. They have televisions in there. Ice shanties can be remarkably cozy. <laughs> But that's excellent. You're a States of Love author. I'm working on one, too. I've got Michigan. Yay! Michigan! We're neighbors. Yes, we are. <laughs> Congratulations. Thank you. I look forward to reading yours. I look forward to reading yours. We love Michigan. I we put mine to... on Mackinac Island. <laughs> so, sitting up there in the middle of the, of the lakes. Yeah, literally in, in Lake Winnebago, which is a very big lake. So, yeah, you're sitting out there on the ice. Your truck is parked beside your shanty because the ice is, you know, 30 inches thick. And uh, you dig a hole in the ice and you get some fish. And apparently yep. you, you find a boyfriend, too, maybe. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> I does. My, my hero, Maddie does. He finds a boyfriend. Shows up at his door in the middle of a ground blizzard and says, <laughs> my, my shanty. He had a portable ice shanty, a tent, and it blew away. Uh -oh. But he has one that's like wood and heavy and it's still there. So he shows up at the door and says, I'm cold. Can I come? <laughs> that's, a, that's an excellent cute meet. I like that. <laughs> uh, so what are you looking forward to in Kansas City? Oh, I'm looking forward to meeting friends that I have already met and also friends I haven't met. I, I'm very shy. I know it sounds strange. I'm very shy. But I love meeting people and I love talking to them. And although I may not always approach people, if they ever approach me, it's like, thank you. And I just love talking with them. I'm also looking forward to meeting one of my very good friends who I've never met before, uh, a fellow author, M.A. Church. Um, we talk weekly on the phone. We, we talk all the time. And I haven't ever met her in person. So this should be very interesting. Oh, that's exciting. And some other authors, too, that I know will be there that I have never met in person. And I, I've talked to them in social media. And a couple of readers, too. So I just like meeting the people. Is this your first GRL or is it a return visit for you? It's a, a second one. I was in Atlanta. I really enjoyed that one. That was my first one. It was a lot of fun. It was somewhat overwhelming and intimidating. But again, I met so many great people and some fans, and I got to give away some special things to some of the fans. I just loved doing that, and it was so much fun that I'm looking forward to doing it again. I'll be a featured author this time. And <laughs> I'm not sure what I'll get to sign up for because every time – see, people tend to put these sign-ups on the weekend. And on the weekend, I have no access. All I have is the iPad, and it won't let me sign on to anything. Oh, no. So I have to sign on on Mondays, and I find out what's left. But So I'll either have a question and answer or I'll have a reading. I would love to do a reading. I love reading my work out loud. Mm -hmm. I've done that at conventions in the past, science fiction conventions. The readings are fun, absolutely. Uh, yeah. So what's the best way for people to keep up with you? Well, the very best way is probably Facebook because I spend more time there than I do on Twitter, which I find rather confusing. Although I do tweet, um, and if people tweet to me, I'll tweet back. I've never really warmed to Twitter as much, but if you can get me there. I'm at Tally under slash Spencer at Twitter. At Facebook, I'm Tally Spencer, Tally at Facebook. So I'm easiest to find there. I also have a blog that people can, can find, Tally Spencer's Brilliant Disguise. I occasionally put up free stories, excerpts, and announcements there. And of course, I always answer my email, which is tally.spencer1. I had to get the number one <laughs> at gmail.com. All right, yeah. we'll, we'll link up to all that stuff in the show notes so that people can uh, find you.
Oh, good. Put my Pinterest in there, too, because I always like to put pictures up for my stories that I'm researching. So some of those pictures are interesting. All right. We'll do that, too. Well, we look forward to meeting you um, in uh, Kansas City, and we thank you for joining us. Oh, thank you so much, Jeff. I've had fun. This is great. I'm looking forward to meeting lots of people, you especially, in Kansas City. You can follow the GRL Blog Tour by going to gayromlit.com slash 2016 blog tour. And just as a reminder, we here at Big Gay Fiction Podcast have teamed up with the authors that we're hosting for a very special giveaway. We are giving you, our uh, valuable listeners, a chance to win a 7-inch Fire tablet loaded with books from many of the authors we're hosting on the GRL Blog Tour. In addition, there's bonus books from Jeff as well as books from Wild City Press and uh, other authors attending GRL. Now, you can see the raffle copter on episode 38's show notes to enter. The big GRL blog tour giveaway... giveaway. (laughs) (laughs) The giveaway runs through Sunday, October 23rd, and you'll find a link uh, to all the participating authors at our show notes page. Yes. Yes, we're very excited to be doing this. And... Keep listening, because later in the show will be this week's Word of the Week that you can put into the raffle copter to get some entries. Good stuff. Now, we've been watching a lot of movies lately. Well, I don't know about a lot, but there are some that we want to talk about. My name is Doris. Mm -hmm. Sally Field film from last year? I think it came out earlier this year. Earlier this year. Yeah. Um, I found this to be unlike any movie I've seen her in. And maybe I haven't seen... Obviously, I haven't seen her entire canon of film. But this was very different. This was a different Sally Field. Yeah. And I really liked it. Um, <clears throat> it was funny. It was sad in some places. Um, also a great performance uh, from Tyne Daly. Mm-hmm. Um, as well as, is it Max Greenfield? Yes. Uh, who many folks know from... Uh, that New, New Fo- Girl. New Girl. Thank you. Like that Fox sitcom that we don't watch anymore. Yeah. <laughs> um, and it was great to see him not in that character. Yeah. Um, do you want to say what it's about? Because I have a hard time putting this film into, like, words. My, okay, My Name is Doris it is about uh, Sally Field's character. Her name is Doris. And she's kind of a bit of a nobody. And it's really about her, 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 what she feels is like her one big chance at happiness. Watching the movie, I was kind of struck by the similarities between uh, this movie, My Name is Doris, and Muriel's Wedding. Because mm. both movies feature female characters who are essentially outsiders, who are kind of ignored by everyone around them. Uh, both of them have a, a chance at happiness, and they both uh, grab for it. And unfortunately, things do not go as planned, uh, and they kind of screw things up royally, uh, and they end up a little sadder, but definitely wiser, so that they can both, both of them end up moving forward in a new, better direction. Um, so it's, (laughs) it's a a strange, funny, uh, heartfelt movie. Uh, if you like Sally Field, definitely check it out. Yeah, it was a good one. It's worth watching. So what is Fourth Man Out? Fourth Man Out is a movie that came out late last year, um, and it's a comedy, and it concerns uh, four guys who have grown up together, I believe, uh, in New Jersey. They're just neighborhood pals. One day, one of the four guys uh, comes out, and uh, the movie is essentially about their friendship and how the, the new dynamic of the four of them and how they're <laughs> they're trying their damnedest to be supportive of their friend <laughs> uh even though they have no clue how to uh it's really funny uh super charming uh i highly recommend you check it out fourth man out cool so now we're gonna throw it over to jay from joyfully jay who's got some book recommendations for us we're happy to welcome back jay from joyfully jay to the podcast hi hi how are you good thanks I hear you've got audiobook stuff to talk about today. Yeah, I uh, came with a list of some of my um, favorite audiobook narrators. We are um, big on audiobooks at Joyfully J. We have quite a few of our reviewers who are really into audio. And in the last 
year or two, I've gotten really into audiobooks. So um, I thought it would be a fun thing to talk about. Um, I love audio because it keeps me distracted when I'm doing things that I don't want to be doing. So I do a lot of um, listening when I drive or when I grocery shop. Seriously, I get so excited on Mondays when I go to the grocery store and I know I have like an hour of uninterrupted listening time. Um, I've even been known to like do housework and listen to an audiobook. So they're great motivators to get you to do stuff you don't want to do because then you have a reason to be reading in the middle of the day instead of doing other things. So I like the housekeeping big, idea. I may have to do that. Yes, really. Well, I listen a lot in the car, especially if I have a drive over about 15 minutes. But um, yeah, I've, in fact, I was just talking to somebody on, uh, on Twitter who said she was cleaning her whole house while she was listening to her audiobook. So they're very motivating to get stuff done. Um, when you get engrossed, so I listen. Um, I listen to a lot, and we do um, a lot of audio reviews. And I think they're nice because for readers, we try to do a whole basic review of the book first, and then a um, review of the audio specifically at the end. So even if you're not an audio reader, you can still read the review and get a sense of the book and whether it's something you want to read. Um, and then we cap on a little bit about audio at the end. So hopefully. Nice. Um, you know, those will work for people who are into audio or who aren't, but hopefully folks will give them a try because uh, I think that they're a lot of fun. Cool. So what are you liking these days? Um, well, I just finished and sort of what inspired me to think about talking about this. Um, I just finished another audiobook book um, narrated by Greg Tremblay. Um, this was a Mary Calmay book, Romanus, which I had not read the first time around. So I try to mix it up between listening to things that I've, read and listening to things cold. So this one I came into cold and um, Greg is one of my favorite narrators and he does um, great voices and accents. So um, one of the things I really liked, this was a very short story. It was only about an hour and a half in audio. And um, one of the things I always was impressed in this book as well is there's some French accents and other things that Greg does really well. So that is, um, that was really good. I really enjoyed that one. Um, right now, I'm actually listening to Reese Ford, um, Fish Stick Fridays, which is one that I had um, listened to as well as um, read. And again, really um, enjoying that one. Um, just to get another take, I find a lot that when you hear a book that you previously listened to or read, it can give you such a different interpretation on the book. Um, one of these I had listened to... Um, was Control, again, by Mary Calme and Cardano C. And it was interesting because my interpretation of one of these characters was so different reading him than hearing him. He came across because there's obviously, when you read, you have just your own interpretation of the book, um, you know, as you're reading the printed words, whereas when you're hearing the narrator, you're getting his interpretation of the character and of the story as well. So it really can make for um, a different reading experience or a different listening experience. Mm -hmm. Do you find that happens often? Um, this was, I think, unusual in that it was real. It was enough that it caught my attention. Um, I don't think that it happens as often that it's such a dramatic difference in the way I read it. Um, actually, though, as one story that that makes me think of when one of the first audios I listened to was um, Shattered Glass, Danny Alexander's book, and um, it's a huge, huge gay romance favorite. And I never read it the first time or when it came out, so I listened to it first and um, loved one of the characters completely and then talked to a friend who said her read on him was very different. And as we were talking about it, it really came down to, again, the, the way that the narrator portrayed this guy. I found him sort of snarky and entertaining and amusing, and she found him annoying when she was just reading it. So I guess it's sort of the difference between when you're texting or emailing and you never know those nuances. Um, I think audio can really bring something to life in the words in a way that um, can be different and, um, you know, hopefully enhance your reading experience as opposed to diminish. Although, obviously, um, you know, there have been audiobooks I've listened to where I said, boy, I think I would have enjoyed this more um, if I had read it because either I didn't particularly like the narrator combination with the book or the way that something came through in the narration didn't work for me as well. So um, it does go both ways. But generally, I find that, um, you know, audio gives sort of a new spin on something that I may have already, um, you know, that I may not have seen or picked up on the first time or 
um, you know, brings a character to life in a way that is sometimes different than how you might do it if you're just reading. Mm-hmm. Cool. So. so I hear you've got a favorite narrator list that's published. I do. We um, do a favorites list on the blog. Um, we have a whole bunch of them. They're usually inspired by something I'm currently reading. So I went through a period where I read like five stories about people who get amnesia, and then I did a favorite amnesia list. And we have everything from, um, you know, favorite young love stories, favorite road trip stories, favorite enemies to lovers, all of that. So um, this week, or actually last week, we put out a um, favorite audiobook narrators. And if you go through it, lists all of our most highly rated audiobook narrators as well, and it links to them, so if you click on their name, it will pull up all the reviews of things that they um, that they read. So um, some of them, just as a sneak peek, if people want to know before, um, that we put on there, um, big favorite Iggy Toma, he rereads um, a lot of Heidi Cullinan's books, the love lesson stories. Um, after you've listened to him once doing Walter, you'll hear Walter in every character, um, but he is fabulous and has done a ton of Heidi's stuff recently. Um, Greg Tremblay, again, is excellent. We've reviewed a lot of his stuff and love him. Um, Charlie David is on the list. He um, did Damon's Hothead. So if you like sort of sexy, dirty firefighters, Charlie is great at the sexy, dirty voices. So um, that one's excellent. Um, and a lot of other folks on there. So hopefully um, if folks are interested in knowing you know, sort of who our favorites are or want some ideas of how to get started in audio, um, you can look through the list and they'll give you um, some highlights of the people that we've really enjoyed and links to the reviews so you can figure out if it's something you might want to listen to as well. That's awesome. We'll link up to that in the show notes. It's a perfect way yeah, to, kind of, to kind yeah. of cap off what we understand is audiobook month. Yes, yes. I was really excited. It was great timing. All right. Well, Jay, thank you so much for being with us, and uh, we'll see you again in a few weeks. Great. Thanks so much. Bye, Jeff. So thanks, Jay, as always, for coming by. Uh, we'll see her again in a couple weeks to see what else she's got for us. And, of course, we encourage listeners to leave their book recommendations in the show notes uh, on Big Gay Fiction Podcast. And you can do that for this particular episode on episode 38. Yeah. Now, for the giveaway of the 7-inch Kindle Fire with all those incredibly awesome books on it, um, the word of the week for the Rafflecopter giveaway... What is the word? Birthday! Birthday is the word of the week. So go to BigGayFictionPodcast.com, look for the Rafflecopter giveaway, and you can use the word of the week, birthday, uh, to get some extra entries. Yeah. So now we get to talk to Joe Okonkwo. Uh, He is the author of Jazz Moon, which is a book that I have spoken highly of in the last few episodes, so we're excited to get to talk to him about that. Today we welcome Joe Okonkwo to the podcast. Joe has had numerous short stories appear in print and online, and his short story Cleo was nominated for a 2015 Pushcart Prize. He's currently the prose editor for Newtown Literary, a journal featuring works by writers from Queens, New York, the place he proudly calls home. In 2017, he'll take the reins as editor of of the annual Best Gay Stories Anthology, published by Lathe Press. His debut novel, Jazz Moon, was released this past May by Kensington Books. Joe, thanks for being here. Thank you. So let's get right to Jazz Moon. Um, I love the book. I've talked about it on the show a couple times already. But I'm not sure I'm, like, capturing everything that this book is. How do you describe it? I describe it as uh, part coming out story, part love story, part personal and creative journey, odyssey, uh, set set against the backdrop of the Harlem Renaissance and Jazz Age Paris. There's a lot going on in terms of love and the search for self-worth, the search for for self-value as a person, as an artist, as as a lover. So all this set against the, the backdrop of a very rich and exciting, uh, culturally rich and very uh, exciting period, the Harlem Renaissance and what was going on in Paris in the 1920s. Um, If I could go back in time to any historical era, it would be the 1920s in Harlem and and in Paris because there was so much, so much happening in terms of jazz, in terms of literature, in in terms of civil rights and politics. I mean, it was what happened in the 1920s politically that 
helped build the foundation for the civil rights movement that, that really got going in the 50s and 60s. Um, I mean, Langston Hughes and Bessie Smith and Duke Ellington, such a rich, wonderful period. It was also a very difficult period for African Americans because there was rampant racism in this country. Um, Jim Crow and discrimination and violence, lynchings, race riots. So it was a, a rich time, but we can't forget that it was also a very, a very difficult time. Right, and it certainly made some of the passages quite difficult to read. Um, some of the some of the things that went on in the book, and to know that those, in some cases, you know, some of that feeling is still around today. Some, you know, eighty, ninety years later. Exactly. I mean, there's still so much, so much work to do. I mean, uh, during that era, you had voter suppression, and during this era, you have voter suppression. Uh, back then, you had violence, you know, police violence against against African Americans, and unfortunately, that uh, that has not changed. So there's there sometimes when I think about the Harlem Renaissance, I, I I realize that a lot of what was going on then is you know still a, a problem now. Mm-hmm. And I, I do like how you struck the balance between the energy and the excitement of it all, but then the 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 other realities of it as well. Right, right. What was your inspiration for such a sweeping book? Um, well, I just I love that era. As I said, I it's just such an amazing era, and I had wanted for a long time to write a write a, a gay story set in that era because there was so much going on in terms of the gay the you know the life the gay stuff in that era too. I attempted to write a short story about it uh, a long, 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 long time ago called The, the Portrait. And it, I, wrote, I was in a fiction workshop in undergrad and wrote, this, wrote that story. And I wish I, I, I probably still have it on a floppy disk somewhere that, t- that tells you how long ago it was written. And I'm sure if I re- were to reread it now, it would just, I would probably laugh out loud because I'm sure it was just awful. Um, and then in 2004, I found out about a short story contest sponsored by one of those writers' magazines, like Poets and Writers or, or The Writer or Writer's Digest, one of those. They had a, a short story contest, and the, uh, the word limit was 1,500 words. And so I still wanted to write this Harlem Renaissance story. And I thought, oh, yeah, I'll enter this contest. I can finish this in, I can write this in 1,500 words, no problem. Well, 12 years and 93,000 words later, finally, we, we, we have a book. Um, I came, into the, came to the project already knowing a, a good deal about the Harlem Renaissance. I had an in, already had an interest in jazz of that era, you know, Duke Ellington, Bessie Smith, Ethel Waters. Had a great affinity for, for the black entertainment of that era. You know, Shuffle Along, which is now a big hit on Broadway, first started in 1921. It was a landmark Broadway musical production. Um, I had a great affinity also for the literature of that era. I remember reading Langston Hughes's uh, first novel, not his first published book, but his first novel called Not Without Laughter, published in 1930. And I, I loved that. And there's something about the richness of the era that that just appeals to me and I think maybe because blacks had it so difficult had such a difficult time in that period and had to fight and work so hard for any kind of recognition I think I find that inspiring I mean I I have it easy compared to what to what African-Americans of that era had to go through so I think that that inspired me to write to write this story as well and the gay stuff I mean it was such a I mean, homosexuality was not accepted per se, but people knew what was going on. It was more or less live or let live. I mean, there were, it was under, the gay stuff was underground, but people were very much aware of it. I mean, there, were, there was a dra- an annual drag bar in Harlem, for example, that was the, the, one of the social events of the season. And a lot of people, mostly straight, came to, came to see the fabulous drag queens and their fabulous outfits. I mean, there were gay bars. There was a place called the Yeah Man. There was a place called Edmonds, which was uh, Fifth Avenue and 132nd Street, I think. I think I referenced that in the novel. And it was, it was, that particular bar was 
was very low down and raunchy and drag queens and 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 transvestites and all kinds of stuff happening. Ethel Waters, a great singer, started her career singing in, in, in that bar and in places like it. Um, and there were buffet flats, which were basically the, the, the Harlem, uh, Harlem Renaissance equivalent of, of, of sex parties or sex clubs. They would go, you would go to a house or an apartment and in each room there would be a, a different sexual activity going on and you could take your pick. So for instance, if you wanted if you like to see two men doing it, you would go into the room where you where there were two performers, so to speak, two guys having sex. Or if you like to see two lesbians doing it, you'd go into a room and there would be two lesbians doing it. Or if you like to see a threesome, you'd go into a room where that was going on. So it was called a buffet flat because it was a, a, ca a cafeteria style uh, selection and you could take your pick. And I talk about that in the novel too. So there was just a lot of stuff happening culturally, sexually, during that era in, in, in Harlem that has a, has a great deal of uh, appeal to me. And I think part of the reason is that it was, it was underground, a lot of it, it was dangerous, and that I guess the, uh, the naughty side of Joe Okonkwo kind of likes that. <laughs> Clearly with... The writing about the 20s and setting in so many different places between Harlem and then what happens on the cruise ship during the journey to Paris and then Paris itself. There's a lot of research for the book. Was there a particular aspect that was more challenging to, to dig into than others? Uh, I think, because I've never lived in Paris and I've actually only visited Paris, Paris twice, uh, so that was challenging. I, I went in 2011 and then again in 2012, partly to specifically to do research for the book. So tr tr to, to get a real affinity for a place that I don't have never lived and not even visited that much, that was challenging. And then, of course, whenever you write a historical novel, you the, the challenge is you, you want to get the, the, not just the dates and the names right, but the, the little details. You know, for instance, on the ship to Paris, I found out that uh, that there were sometimes on ships on these ocean liners there were carousels, I mean full full fledged carousels. You know, that like you would see in Central Park or an amusement park. There were uh, uh, replicas uh, of of Paris of Parisian cafes, complete with sidewalks and and palm uh, trees. These uh, cruise ships were basically these floating palaces, so I had that that was probably the most challenging thing to write because when I when I first wrote the the um, the cruise ship section, the ocean liner section, I, I didn't include any of those kinds of details and and it, it wasn't working, and so I had to really dig in and do some reading and find find pictures and and uh, find find information about what was what these ships were like in order to really bring it to life and I I I think I think I accomplished that I think the ship section might be one of the better written uh, sections on the in the book as a result you captured it so well I mean I felt like like the first time I told you after I'd read the first chapter excerpt you had like I felt the the whole buzz of the of, of jazz era Harlem, you know, kind of right there. Mm -hmm. um, and then the cruise ship too. I was like, I've never, I've never even been on a cruise ship in the modern age, much less back in the twenties. <laughs> and I felt like I was, you know, sitting right there. Uh, so I think you really, you did a, to me a great job of capturing the, the feel and essence of it all while still, you know, really paying attention to your characters, uh, which I liked a lot. Right. <clears throat> I mean, um, I think that's I think that's the writer's job and challenge to really recreate, especially if you're writing a historical novel and writing about an era that people might not know anything about. The challenge and the and the job, the task is to to bring that era, bring that ship, bring that neighborhood really to life as as visually as you can. And that was that was my goal to to really be able. 
to, to really paint that picture, to create that picture in, in, the, in the minds of the reader so they can feel like they really are, are there. How did you make your choices between balancing what is historical truth with the fictional story you wanted to tell? Hmm. Good question. Um, you know, I wanted, I did a lot of, I tried to do research on the black gay experience in Paris. I found lots of information on the gay experience in Paris, and I found lots of information on the black experience in Paris, but nothing, absolutely nothing on the black gay experience in Paris. And I know there was one. Um, I even reached out to, to someone I came in contact with at a uh, at a, a seminar, or I guess a, a, a panel, a guy who, who is an expert on, on uh, sexual issues and the Harlem Renaissance and gender and art issues. And I reached out to him and asked him, you know, do you know anything about the black gay experience in Paris? And he uh, reached back and said, there's a dearth of information on that. There's just nothing out there. You know, I guess it was so underground and that there's just there's nothing out there. So I had to, I, I had to kind of, I had to fuse together the information I knew about blacks in Paris with what I knew about gays in Paris and just try to ima imagine for myself what that must have been like. So I didn't find any information. So in terms of that, finding that balance, it came from both from facts and simply my own imagination and my own educated, I hope educated guesses in terms of what that, what, what that must have been like. I'm curious how you decided what your characters were going to be to, to have been the poet and baby back the musician and to give Ben a wife and then, you know, kind of melding all this together. What was your process to kind of put all your pieces together, I guess? is what I'm asking. I guess just trial and error and lots of workshopping and getting lots of feedback from people. I was in the MFA program at City College for Creative Writing and uh, it's interesting that you mentioned the wife. When In the early drafts, people kept telling me she, it's not working. You know, everything's working except her. She's not believable. She's not real. So I had to work really hard to, 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 to bring her to life. Um, but like, yeah, I think just trial and error and lots of drafts and lots of feedback and, um, you know, tapping into my own experience as, as a gay coming out process, a difficult coming out process, although not as difficult as, as the protagonist in, in this novel, thank God, not as difficult as that. Um, but, you know, whenever I hit a roadblock, uh, emotion, uh, trying to, to, document his coming out process, I would think about what it was like for me, like to, like to think about different aspects of my coming out process, and that certainly helped. And as far as putting all the pieces together, none of these characters are based on me specifically, but, a, but there's a lot of me in each of them. There's a lot of, a lot of me in Ben. There's a lot of me in Babyback. There's probably a lot of me in, in Angeline, too. I didn't realize any of that, that there was so much of me in these characters until I was almost done writing the novel. And I would go back and read sections. And I would think, oh, yeah, that's, that's kind of me, isn't it? Um, so, yeah. So what's your writing process like with something like this? Oh, uh, there's some outlining, which I tend to do by hand. Mostly I compose directly at the keyboard. I do a lot of brainstorming. Uh, sometimes if I... If I need to brainstorm, I, t I go take a walk. I take. I live in Astoria, Queens, and there's a nice park. And I just sometimes just take a walk out to the park, and I take my phone. And as ideas come to me, or as entire passages come to me, I'll take my phone out and type them into this, this memo app I have on the phone. And the process also includes lots of trial and error, and lots of lots of workshopping, and getting a lot of feedback. You mentioned your MFA. Was this the primary thing you worked on with your MFA? Yes, this was my thesis. And it's, it's funny because when I first started the MFA program in spring of 2011, I thought I would finish the novel, finish the whole novel by summer and start a new 
start a new novel in the fall and that that would be my thesis. I had no idea what I was what writing a novel was like. I had no no concept of how long it took and how complex it was. I mean, I, uh, Jazz Moon was published as a short story and I thought that the short story would just be part one and I could just you know go go from there. But the story needed the short story needed a lot of fleshing out and a lot of expansion because it was just a short story. And I, I went into the process of the MFA having no clue what that was going to be like. And you know I was overly ambitious, you know, thinking I would finish Jazz Moon in a few months and then start something else. Um, but it didn't didn't work out that way. I ended up working on Jazz Moon from was well working on it in the MFA program from 2011 till I graduated in 2014. So it uh, took a while to complete. And of course, like I said, it started as a short story in 2004. So it was a, all in all has been a, a 12 year, a 12 year uh, process. Mm -hmm. Did the short story writing overall prepare you to be able to take this on? I assume that it must have to some degree and then it just, you know, it, you had, you ended up going from fifteen hundred word things to ninety thousand words. I mean, to some extent, it prepared me because it, it that short story provided the foundation, and uh, my other short story writing, I think, certainly, certainly helped. Although I think my short story writing since Jazz, since I started Jazz Moon, is a lot better than what I was writing before that. But uh, you know, short story writing is a whole other, completely different animal than writing a novel because um, you have a much shorter period of time to get across whatever you want to get across with a novel you have you know 93,000 words to do it um, uh, the, the science fiction writer Octavia Butler said that she hated writing short stories because her when she would write them she would realize that her short stories were really her, really an attempt at writing a novel. They were really novels in waiting <laughs> because there's su it's such a different, really a completely different art form. Right. So who are your author inspirations? Toni Morrison. She is my absolute favorite writer. I love what she does with language. I love how she documents the black experience or different aspects of the, of the black experience. I mean, her novel, Beloved, I mean, what I, I read it probably 20-something years ago, and then I reread it a couple of years ago, and I was struck by how she, how she depicts slavery. I mean, I think all of us have a, have a big-picture understanding of, of slavery and what it did to blacks, but she talks, she discusses slavery, depicts slavery in such personal terms, you realize that it it really destroyed people on a personal level, on a spiritual level, and that kind of destruction doesn't doesn't heal easily. It doesn't heal within a generation, and it's easy to see when you, at least for me, it was easy to see reading that novel how all, how you know centuries later, blacks are still suffering and reeling from. From that experience, because it destroyed, it destroyed people on such a personal level. So Toni Morrison, um, James Baldwin, his novel *Another Country* was the first gay novel I ever read. I read it back in high school, not as part of any curriculum, but I, I, I had uh, I had the set of encyclopedias, and I read about him, and I read about this novel, and I found out that that the novel was uh, was about uh, it had gay issues as well as interracial issues, and I was intrigued, so I read it, and uh, it was really good. I reread re it a couple of years ago, and I was surprised at how difficult it was, and I was surprised at how, as a high school student, I was actually able to get through it, and I loved loved it. And when I remember when I finished reading it all those years ago, I felt depressed because. I mean, these were these were my people. These were they were black and they were gay. And I mean, I was still very you know in high school, I was still very closeted. And so these these characters in this novel became friends. And so when I finished the novel, I felt like I was leaving these friends behind, and I got incredibly depressed. 
Um, Alice Walker has been is a favorite or favorite writer. Alice Hoffman, Thomas Hardy, I have a great deal of regard for. Mary Shelley, I love Frankenstein. It's one of my favorite books. Um, what else? Who else? Langston Hughes, I love his prose as well as his poetry. Uh, Sarah Dunant, who wrote uh, The Birth of Venus and In the Company of the Courtesan, both set in the in a different Renaissance, the Italian Renaissance, both inc- wonderful books and how she brings brings those eras and those locales to life. I mean, I mean, it's challenging enough to bring an era, a recent, relatively recent era like the 1920s alive, I mean, to bring an era hundreds of years ago, to bring that to life, that, that takes a, a, that's a special gift. So those are some of the authors who, have, who, I, who I truly love. And what would your words of wisdom be for other first-time authors looking to working on their first novel right now? Keep writing and keep reading and just read everything. Read read fiction, read read genre fiction, read mysteries and thrillers, read read politics, read the news. I mean, I I, I love political writing. I'm a political junkie and I, I really do think reading politics helps my fiction because political writers have to get information across very efficiently, but also in a creative way that keeps the reader reading. And so, and that's what a fiction writer has to do. So you can, I've learned a lot from reading, reading political uh, writing. Um, What else? Uh, Workshop, definitely workshop, whether that's in an, in an MFA program or any, or, you know, in some kind of structured setting or just in an, or getting feedback from from fellow writers who you who whose opinions you respect. So reading, writing, and workshopping that that's that would be my advice. And what's coming up next for you uh, besides taking over Best Gay Stories next year? Um, I need to start writing a new novel. And I, the, I want to write something again set in the Harlem Renaissance. I'm not not finished with that with that era. Um, there's a woman named Gladys Bentley who makes a cameo actually in Jazz Moon, and she sang in a club called, called the Clam House, which is also in in the novel. She was a drag king. She was a very overweight woman, and she was known for wearing a, a white top hat and white tuxedo and tails. She was a blues singer and pianist, and she was known for for, take, for taking contemporary songs and changing the changing the, changing the lyrics and making them raunchy. And she would flirt with the women in the audience. And she had this incredible kind of growly voice, um, very bluesy. She claimed to have gotten married to a woman in an Atlantic City wedding ceremony, a white woman. But no one knows who this woman was, if she was really telling the truth. Nobody knows, and not much has been written about her. And then in the 1950s, during the McCarthy era, she did an, uh, an, uh, an interview with Ebony Magazine recanting her lesbianism and saying, I'm cured, I'm taking female hormones. So I, I, she, what little I know about her is fascinating. And so I, I want her write. I want to write about her. So... That's going to be my next project. I'm either going to call it Gladys or Drag King. I'm not sure. I kind of like both titles in their own way because Gladys is very powerful, but then Drag King also makes you wonder what's what's inside that book. Right, right. So what's the best way with people for people to keep up with you on the web so they can track what you're doing and be ready for the oh. next book? I'm all over the place on the web. I have a website, joeoconquo.com. I'm on Facebook. You can uh, like my author page and get updates there. I'm on Twitter. My handle is uh, at joeojazz... No, at at jazzmoon... Shoot, what's my Twitter handle? (laughs) At joeojazzmoon. That's what it is. At joeojazzmoon. I'm also on Goodreads and on Tumblr. So I I have... uh, Quite a, quite a footprint uh, on, in social media and on the web, so I'm easy to find. Excellent. We will link up to all those uh, in the show notes so people can find you easily. 
Joe, I thank you so much for being with us and talking about this today. Thank you. Thanks so much. So we thank Joe for being with us. Uh, in the show notes, you'll find links to his book, his website, as well as his author inspirations. Good stuff. So I think that's going to do it for this week's episode. Yep. Coming up next week in episode number 39, we have Tammy Middleton. Now She writes as T.M. Smith, and she'll be here as part of the 2016 GRL blog tour. And she'll be talking about her new release, the latest in her All Cox series. Excellent. Yeah. All right. So everybody have a good week, and we'll see you back here for episode 39. All right. Bye now. Thank you for listening to Jeff and Will's Big Gay Fiction Podcast. New episodes are available every Monday at iTunes and other major podcast outlets. While there, subscribe to the show and please consider leaving a review. For detailed show notes, links, and to sign up for the monthly newsletter, visit BigGayFictionPodcast.com. Big Gay Fiction Podcast.